Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 3. We'll read our Scripture text there, and then we'll announce the title of the message, and then we'll begin to preach. It sure is good to see another full house. And church family, it's always good to see you. And visitors, it is our honor to have you with us today. Proverbs chapter 3, we'll read two verses of Scripture. Stand, if you would, and let me read, and then we'll pray and begin. Of course, Solomon, David's son, recorded some thousand proverbs, anecdotal wisdom, truths that he had discerned through the Holy Spirit that he shared with us. And, of course, primarily he was trying to train up his own children, but also share this wisdom with us. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord completely. By the way, the Bible hasn't changed, ladies and gentlemen. The Christianity that we have is consistent. The Old Testament and the New Testament fit together as by one author because it is one progressive revelation by one author. Whereas the type in the Old Testament was that sin was atoned for by an innocent substitutional blood sacrifice, we now look back at the fulfillment of those types where Paul recognized and reminded people that it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that took away sin. In fact, the action alone was not efficacious at all. But if done in obedient faith, looking forward to the Messiah that was first promised in Genesis 3.15, the Lamb of God, which came to take away the sin of the world, and now we look back at that by faith, we all go to heaven by the finished work of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And subsequently, we all live lives by faith, as Paul expands into here. Trust in the Lord completely. Don't lean on your own wisdom. In all your, or excuse me, let me say it like this. Acknowledge Him in all your ways. And you can be confident, He shall direct thy paths. The title of the message today is simply, where the church went wrong. On the screen, you'll see a picture from uh, 2016. We were, in fact, this church was the driving force behind an effort called Protect Life and Marriage OK. And the effort was rather unique as we had sought to end abortion, not by overturning Roe versus Wade, but by using the Tenth Amendment recognizing that in America, and we all know this, and we've got to think about this, remind ourselves of these things. We do not have a king. In America, all people are created equal. When you've got a lot of equal people, who gets the privilege of governing since none of us are better or none of us have a divine right? Well, you get together as individuals and you agree and constitute or create a limited government And you, as those that have the privilege given to them by God, delegate to that limited government what authority it does and doesn't have. Well, in the Tenth Amendment, it very clearly says that the states created a limited general government in Washington, D.C. As a matter of fact, it says their powers are few and defined. Boy, somebody needs to remind them of that these days. Anything that wasn't specifically listed and given by the sovereign states to the limited general government, remained under the control of the states. So one of these is medical licensing. You don't get a federal license to practice medicine. A doctor is licensed in each state, meeting the standards by those respective states. Now, considering that the Hippocratic Oath, a doctor swears he will intentionally do no harm to a patient under his care, And when you recognize clearly that an abortion is murdering one of the two patients that he has care over, we had come up with this idea where our Oklahoma legislature could, in fact, remove the medical license of an abortionist in the state of Oklahoma. And then he would not be able to practice medicine in Oklahoma any longer, could no longer perform abortions in the state of Oklahoma any longer. Brilliant strategy. We had attorneys lined up that loved it. We were ready to go to battle with this. And we actually had met with our governor, Mary Fallon. We'd met with our attorney general, Scott Pruitt. 
We had a coalition of pastors. As a matter of fact, before it was done, we had 1,127 pastors from across Oklahoma that had signed on to this effort. Now, if you haven't been a member of Fairview, you probably had never heard of it before. Because the sad thing we came to find out is we had a lot of pastors that said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, count me in. And they never mentioned it once to their congregations. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that if these pastors had taught their people that we had a chance literally to change the debate about abortion and end it in our state, we should have, based upon surveys, I mean, what, at least half of Oklahoma professes to be Bible-believing Christians. I mean, it's not unreasonable to think that we couldn't have had 100,000 people down at the Capitol praying and encouraging our legislature to go ahead and pass this legislation. Well, even though that didn't happen, and our pastors said they were on board but didn't do anything, nevertheless, primarily the work of this church and maybe eight or nine others, less than ten churches, we got this from an idea passed through the state house, passed through the state senate. We got it to the governor's desk where she had sworn to us in person with our attorney, Matt Staver, in the meeting that she would sign it if we we got it to her desk. But unfortunately, uh, she betrayed our trust and vetoed it just about a day before the end of the legislative session that year, and it wound up being a dead issue, sadly. There were many lessons that we learned from this. One I want to share with you. Over the process of this building this coalition, we had another man in the community, uh, Oklahoma City area, that was a part of our project, and he dealt with our media relations. And he doesn't attend this church. He attends a a larger uh, church in the Oklahoma City area. And uh, this man was at a, a, a prayer group, a men's prayer group. And he was talking with another businessman, because we literally ran this on a shoestring budget. Uh, so every dollar was, was much appreciated. And he had gone to this businessman and shared with him what we were doing and asked this businessman for his assistance. Now, listen to this answer. The businessman said, well, I'm a businessman, and I am a Christian, but I am not a Christian businessman. Ladies and gentlemen, that is impossible. Either Jesus is the Lord of you, or He isn't. But His explanation was telling. He goes to church on Sundays, but doesn't know or allow the Bible to influence His life the rest of, his, uh, the, rest of the week. Now, as nonsensical as that explanation from that businessman sounded, as I heard from the responses of most of you, that is not the exception, and that explains why we are in the condition that we are in as a country. The American church has, in fact, adopted a form of Platonic Greek Gnosticism in how we practice Christianity. That is how an Oklahoma governor can literally lead in the National Day of Prayer events and then veto a bill ending abortion. Jesus is the Lord of her Sundays, but Jesus is not the Lord of her politics. That's how Baptists can campaign as conservative Christian champions. Then once they're in the legislature, they do nothing but expand uh, gambling and expand liquor. Jesus is the Lord of their going to church but Jesus isn't the Lord of the rest of their lives. Now, why is this, and how did it happen? Well, as you all know, context is critical to properly understanding Scripture. You have to know who is writing, to whom is he writing, and what is he writing about. The books of the Bible were comprised from Jewish authors writing primarily from a Jewish or to a Jewish audience from a Jewish worldview about the Jewish Messiah, who also happens to be the God of all creation and the Savior of the world. But understand that the Bible comes from a Hebrew predisposition. The Hebrew worldview was understood. And there's no question that early on the church at Pentecost was 100% Jewish. They had a Jewish worldview because they were, in fact, Jews. And they had great knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, I know you hear certain very famous pastors across the United States say that we simply need to disconnect from the Old Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, that truly is heretical. 
And understand that without the Old Testament, the New Testament has nothing to stand on. Quite frankly, the four Gospels mean absolutely nothing unless they are proving conclusively from Jesus' life prophecies from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be the King of the Jews, would be a suffering servant, would be the Son of Man, would also be the Son of God. As a matter of fact, for the first two decades of Christianity, the Tanakh or the Old Testament, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, was the only Bible that the New Testament church had to operate from. They had a Jewish worldview with great knowledge of the Old Testament. In fact, the question of the early church was not about baptism or the work of the Holy Spirit. The question of the, Holy, of the first church was about circumcision. Christianity was treated as simply another sect or denomination, I might say, for our vernacular of Judaism by the Romans. And at that time, the time of Christ, there were some 24 known sects of Judaism. Some of them you are familiar with. For example, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Herodians. And now you had this group called the Nazarenes. All sects of Judaism, all gathering at the temple. But Christianity was Jewish to its very core. Again, the question was not whether a Jew could become part of the church part of this new spirit-born community. The question was whether a Gentile could, in fact, become a part of this new spirit-born community. Now, as you know from studying your Bible, over time there was greater separation between official Judaism and the ecclesia. Open persecution began with the martyrdom of Stephen and the hatred of Saul of Tarsus. Finally, by the Roman conquest of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., when at that time the believing Jews left Jerusalem, listening to what is recorded in Luke 21. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, there are two different um, sieges of Jerusalem that are referenced in the Olivet Discourse. One is detailed in Matthew 24. One is detailed in Luke 21. But in Luke 21, it talks, it says, when you see the city surrounded by the enemy, then flee to the mountains and flee to the hills because I'm going to judge Jerusalem. Well, the Orthodox Jews considered the Nazarenes as traitors as they, in fact, did listen to the words of Jesus and had fled from Jerusalem prior to the siege uh, of Jerusalem by the Romans. Well, as you can imagine, being unpatriotic, that just increased the divide between what we call now Orthodox Judaism and Christianity. But over time, the church grew exponentially as a result of Paul's mission work, along with Barnabas and Silas and, and Timothy and others, as they spread throughout Asia and Europe, even reaching as far as Rome. What a wonderful time of evangelism, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was being proclaimed to this pagan Gentile world. But with that expansion and with those converts, the Greek line of thought invaded the thinking of the church. In fact, much of the New Testament addresses an error that you have perhaps heard in your Sunday school classes, an error called Gnosticism, as John and Paul and Peter and others warned against this heresy that was trying to infiltrate the church in their many epistles. Well, what is Gnosticism? Well, basically, it is the idea of completely separating your spiritual you from your physical you, completely separating your soul from the material world. As you see on the screen, the Greeks viewed the material world, which would include your body, as being irredeemably wicked. Only your soul could be redeemed. The spiritual is good, but the body is sinful and earthly. Now, this led to a heretical conclusion about Jesus himself. After all, how could that which is holy become part of the material world, which is inherently evil? So there was this idea that Jesus was not actually in flesh, that Jesus was just a phantom spirit. And if you were to see him walk along the seashore, he would not leave footprints because he wasn't physically there. There was another theory that the spirit of the Messiah came upon this man, Jesus of Nazareth, when he was baptized by John and then departed from his body 
as he hung on the cross. Either way, they denied the fact that God became flesh and died for our sins. They denied the fact that our Creator actually gave His life for His creation. This obviously is heresy. And obviously the Gospels address this throughout all of them. But this mentality of separating the spirit of you from the physical of you led to the conclusion that you can separate your spiritual life from your physical life. In fact, the idea was you can sin all you want to in your body as long as your soul was pure. Practically, this was very convenient. They had, didn't have to worry about charity because that was part of the material world. Also, they didn't worry about sexual purity. And many of the, the Christians were being seduced to come back into idolatry, which revolves around basically uh, sexual immorality and orgies. That is what took place at the temple with, with, with temple idol worship. And the Gnostics were, were, were trying to seduce away these new believers back into idolatry, saying, oh, well, that's just the material world. That's just your flesh. You can sin all you want to in your flesh as long as your soul is pure. Ladies and gentlemen, we know that is nonsense. In fact, John addresses in 1 John completely this idea of Gnosticism. And he says in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in sin, continually walk in sin, then we're lying and we don't know the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with the Lord. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The Apostle Paul said this, in fact, Dan mentioned it in Sunday school, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And the Apostle Paul wrapped it all up in a letter to the church in Corinth when he said, It doesn't matter what you do, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. In other words, glorify God in every single thing that you're doing. But ladies and gentlemen, in modern day America, we have adopted much this same separation as we have compartmentalized our Christianity, much like a picnic plate. We have our religion. We have our spiritual area of the plate, which we keep over here. And by the way, you notice we keep it separated from every area of life. We don't want to allow Christianity and the teachings of Jesus Christ and biblical teachings to affect us as to how we train our children or raise our children or educate our children. Uh, after all, we're, we, we've got better teachers like Dr. Spock to draw from now. We don't allow Christianity to affect how we behave as husbands toward our wives or as wives toward our husbands. We don't allow Christianity into our workforce or education. We don't, and we certainly don't allow Christianity into our politics. Christianity has become something that we do on Sunday morning. And we don't let our church thing interfere with the rest of our lives. As a matter of fact, we have our spiritual life where we place all of our sacred things that we do, things like Bible study, fellowship, and missions work, and prayer meetings, and, and Bible studies, and things like that. Then we have our real lives, our physical lives, where we live 95% of our lives. My career, my family, my business, my politics, my hobbies, my vacations, my habits, my wants, my sex life, my education, my entertainment, my goals in life, my desires. And we leave secular education to guide us in that vast area of our lives. Now, let me ask a simple question. In what part of your life is Jesus not the Lord over? Well, here's what I'd like to ask you to do as a pastor of this church. And for those of you that are just visiting here, as a convenience to the pastor, whatever church you happen to attend, make sure and write down a list of the areas of your life that Jesus is not the Lord over. And give those to your pastor so he'll know that he is not supposed to preach about those things when he's in church. Because that's part of your secular life and not to be dealt with in church or according to the Word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus is Lord, then He's Lord of all. 
When Thomas fell on his knees as he stood before the resurrected Christ, he cried out, My Lord and my God. He was not asking Jesus to just be the Lord of his Sunday morning. He was surrendering the entirety of himself, who whatsoever he is, was, or did, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, remember, Christianity is not something that we do. And the church is not something that we attend on Sunday morning. We are the church. As a matter of fact... Christianity is not based upon emotion. It's not based upon feeling. It's based upon fact. Either the tomb was empty or it wasn't. And if it wasn't empty, then we're wasting time being here. We might as well just start sleeping in on Sunday mornings and getting to the golf course a little bit earlier. However, if the tomb was in fact empty, then Jesus is the Lord. And every person has a decision as to what they're going to do with that bit of information. They can shake their fist and say at God and say, I will not have you to rule over me. Or they can fall on their knees as Thomas did and cry out, my Lord and my God. But understand what lordship means. It means Lord over every area of you. You've died to yourself because Christ died for you. And now you live to him in every way. True Christianity means that a person has come face to face with the risen Savior, recognizing that Christ came because we are sinners, that if we die without Him, we'll be separated forever from Him in the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. But God the Son stepped into His creation as a man. His name was Jesus He gave His own perfect life as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin that we owe. He rose again to prove that the price was paid completely and that the chains of death could no longer hold Him or us. And because He lives, we too will live forever in glorified bodies like His and a new creation as we are all new creations in Christ Jesus. We, like Thomas, fall before Him and cry out, My Lord and my God. As Paul said in Romans 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and you believe it with all your heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, then you are saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, that salvation and subsequent lordship was understood in the Hebrew mentality. You can't separate them. Let me explain in a little greater detail. Deuteronomy 6.4 is what would be to the Jew like our John 3.16 is. It's called the Shema. Here. Every Jew knew this by heart. As a matter of fact, this passage of Scripture is what hangs in the mezuzah on a doorway of a Jewish home or synagogue. It is the passage of Scripture that is inside the little black box, the tefillin that that a a Jewish man would have on his forehead and on his wrist as, as he goes to pray. In the Hebrew language, there are only about 7,000 words, whereas in modern-day English, we have about 100,000. To properly study the Bible, you have to see the words. That's, by the way, that's one of the reasons I still love the King James Version, because it is a word-for-word translation from the accepted, the majority text. Now, I'll read over other translations, because they're written a little easier for us to understand in our day and age. But I love being able to get in and look at what the actual Hebrew and Greek word and try to grasp the depth of what the writer was referencing. But this word, Shema, Shema Israel, hear Israel. Adonai, the Lord, plural. Elihenu, our God. Adonai, the Lord, in a plural form. Echad is one. It's interesting that even in the Jewish profession of faith, daily pledge of allegiance, that they would pray morning and afternoon, that they recognize the plurality of the Godhead and the unity of the Godhead. But that's not what I'm preaching about this morning. But there are different words that it can use there for the term one. The one ikad means unity, one. As if here I have one bottle, but here I have one congregation. 
So I think it's interesting that even in the Shema, you see a picture of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it says here, Hear, O Israel. It's interesting that this word hear doesn't just mean hear. It also means to obey. So it's understood that if I'm telling you something and you say, okay, then there was going to be an action that would accompany that, that verbal declaration. So there was no controversy between James and Paul from a Jewish perspective. The natural result of one falling on his knees to call upon the resurrected Christ as his personal Savior is to recognize that He is, in fact, your Lord. What did Hebrew scholar and apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, tell the Greek-thinking church in Corinth, correcting their inherent Greek view and reminding them of Hebraic biblical truth? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he said this, Don't you know that your body... Not just your soul. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God. You are not your own. You don't belong to you. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, notice the response to Gnosticism. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit which belong to God. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no compartmentalization there. What did Paul tell that Roman church correcting their inherent Greek view, reminding them of Hebraic biblical truth. He said in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Your bodies are to be holy and acceptable in the Lord, which is your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice the material man and the immaterial man that you may prove or discern or know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, don't get me wrong. We are not saved because of a transformed life. We cannot do enough good works to get to heaven. We don't deserve heaven. We all fall short. But a transformed life is the natural result of being saved. So let me ask again, what part of your life is Jesus not the Lord over? Now, you all know Alex McFarland. We have had Alex in our church uh, on many occasions. Alex is a great uh, Bible student, Christian apologist, preacher. Love him. Alex was in a debate a couple of years ago with an Islamic cleric named Khalid Griggs. And Alex asked the cleric, said, does one have to believe the Shahada, by the way, the Shahada is the Muslim profession of faith. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Does one have to believe the Shahada to become a Muslim, or just say it? The cleric's answer was, he only has to say it. Ladies and gentlemen, understand, Christianity, faith is not simply mental assent. It is not praying an empty prayer. It is not simply a get-out-of-hell-free card, leave me alone, I want to live my life my way. The prayer of faith is a heart's confession that's based upon the revelation that Jesus is the Lord, and that results in a transformation. From those of you that have some, uh, that consider yourself deep Bible students, understand that this is not the lukewarm, rational pistis of the Greek philosophers. It's not simply mental assent. Saving faith is of the Hebraic emunah. It is more than belief that certain events about God are true. But notice what this says here. And by the way, this is not from a Christian website. This is from a Jewish website. Emunah is more than belief that certain statements about God are true. It is belief in God and trust and reliance upon God in all of, uh, all of which call forth behavior consistent with that trust and reliance. So this is what James was talking about when he said, you say you have faith. Well, how can you show me your faith if it's not evident in your behavior? He said, here, let me show you my faith by the way I live, by my conduct. Faith without works is dead. The Great Commission Jesus commanded us to go into all the world and make disciples. Pause here for a moment. 
Doesn't say make members of Fairview Baptist Church. Doesn't say make church members anywhere. Doesn't say uh, make professors of faith. It doesn't say uh, get a thousand people to pray the sinner's prayer. It says that we are to make disciples. Then it goes on and gives some clarification. To make disciples, we're to teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Let me ask you a quick question, ladies and gentlemen. How much of the Bible was written by God? How much? So those all things, and by the way, as I said a little while ago, it took 20 years before they added anything on paper in addition to what we would consider the first 39 books of the Bible. The only Bible the church had for two decades was what we would call the Old Testament. What was Jesus teaching the disciples out of? The Old Testament. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, he pointed out point, 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 how he had fulfilled all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, all pointing to him. Now, in Acts 11, we are informed that Christians, initially a derogatory term, means followers of Christ, imitators of Christ. Well, that's what we were. So a Christian means a disciple or a follower of Christ. Last time I was in Israel was about two years ago now. We were planning on going last year, but the shutdown kind of put that on hold. But on our last day, we were walking through the Jewish quarter of the old city, area that you see there on the map, just, what, west of the Wailing Wall, just west of the mosque complex. And we were sitting down to rest, and we were watching some of the passers-by, and one of the members of our tour group asked our guide, Isaac, why the Jews dressed so differently. First of all, let me say that going to Israel is like going to another state in America. They're very much like we are. Not every Jew is religious. You have liberal Jews uh, that, are, that are Jewish in heritage, but they're not religious at all. You have some Orthodox Jews that are like what we would say good uh, church-attending American citizens dressed just like we are. You see up on the screen some of the fun that we had. Here over here you see Brother Bill Meadows now in heaven. Charlie's dad. Brother Bill went over there with us on this particular trip. There are only about seven or eight of us. See Brother Jerry Brown. Is Brother Jerry here this morning? No, Brother Jerry's not feeling well this morning. Uh, Brother Shane. Now, in fact, look at this. These two men, both in heaven. Brother Shane in heaven. Brother Emmett still here. We were out on the range with the uh, Gavati Brigade, uh, getting a chance to uh, uh, exercise some of our Second Amendment skills. Uh, down here doing some evangelism with some uh, troops at a prior trip literally right on the Lebanese border during the Lebanese war, uh, feeding these guys steak at night and having an incredible opportunity, this Gentile uh, being able to share the truth of the Messiah with these, uh, these Jews. This man here, uh, um, okay, Guy, uh, Guy Baton, Colonel Guy Baton, nicknamed the animal. We had dinner in his house, got to share with, with Guy and his wife. Uh, he's nicknamed the animal. He is a colonel that doesn't send his troops into battle. He leads his troops into battle. And as you can tell by his nickname, he is a warrior, but he is also an incredible tender man. He wept as we were in his house. He loves his family. He loves his country. So anyway, they're just like we are. But the question was referencing this particular unique set of what we call the ultra-Orthodox Jews, primarily the Hasidic Jews. They're dressed in black suits with black hats and white shirts. But so many of them have distinct differences. They wear different styles of hats. They wear their socks differently. They wear different styles of jackets. Similar, but different. Well, as many times I've been there ten times. As many times I've been there, I just assumed that these were fashion choices. But the answer that Isaac gave me really stirred my Bible study and shed some light on what I'm about to share with you. He said this, They wear their hats the way their particular rabbi does. They wear their socks the way their rabbi does. They, their goal was to become like their rabbi in their thought, their mannerisms, and behavior. Understand that term rabbi means my teacher. The I at the end makes it personal and possessive. A Jewish rabbi didn't just hand his students a syllabus at the start of the semester. They were commanded to follow him, literally 
live life with Him, follow Him, or I would say walk with Him. Does that ring a bell from any of your Bible study? Come walk with me. Come follow me. The Hebrew word for walk is halak. It means more than simply taking a stroll. The term walk refers to your overall lifestyle, including how you conduct yourself morally. And a rabbi's interpretation of the Torah was called the halakha, how to walk in accordance with God's Word. As a matter of fact, one Jewish author likened the maturity of a disciple to be measured by the amount of dust that he had accumulated on his clothing from following his rabbi so closely as he watched and imitated and listened and learned and applied his teaching. Now, in America, we have redefined what it means to live by faith. We believe that living by faith means that we live our lives the way we want to live our lives, justifying our behavior and the decisions in light of the world's wisdom. Then, when we absolutely make a mess out of our lives, we get on our knees and ask God to fix it. We need to quit trying to pray our way out of situations we have behaved ourselves into, ladies and gentlemen. That is not, in fact, living by faith. That is testing God. Galatians 2 tells us the just shall live by faith. And Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So living by faith means that we listen to what our Lord is telling us in His Word and obey it and apply it to our lives. So let me give you some example of what it means to live by faith. Living by faith means husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. That's living by faith. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, the ladies are also supposed to respond just as Christ loved us because He first loved us and we love Him. We are supposed to respond, ladies, to our husband's love with love of our own. That word also is the word agape. It means unconditional act of the will, an obedient service, a dedication, a commitment, a sacrifice. Living your life, getting up every day as the husband saying, how can I take care of my wife to glorify God? The wife getting up every day saying, how can I take care of my husband to glorify God? So living by faith is wives, let your inner beauty exceed your outer beauty. Let your husbands see the love of Christ in you, in your home. By the way, here's a, off the cuff, a perfect example of living by faith. A soft answer turns away wrath, does it not? That's a proverb. It's a good, good idea. Next time your wife comes in and she gripes at you, you can gripe back and see where that leads. I don't know who won the fight last night, but I can imagine it would be something similar. Or when your wife is having a bad day and she comes in and says something kind of snappy or snitty, you can respond with a soft answer, going, hmm, that's not like my lovely bride. I wonder what's got her trouble today. Boy, God's wisdom works very well, much better than our own wisdom. But that is, in fact, an example of living by faith. So parents, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is living by faith. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. That is living by faith. Avoid every appearance of evil. That is living by faith. Don't commit adultery. Flee fornication. That is living by faith. Don't lie. Don't gossip. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Don't covet. Don't murder. Be honest in business. That is living by faith. Be just and objective in your judgment. That is living by faith. Pay your bills, Christian, on time. That is living by faith. Be generous in charity. That is living by faith. Don't be excessive in debt. Boy, it's amazing. If we would actually be taught biblical economics, which our church does, we wouldn't have nearly the number of people that say they can't afford to tithe. But we all are taught economics in accordance to the world. So the majority of church members are in debt up to here, driving cars they can't afford, living in houses they can't afford to impress people they don't even like. <laughs> and then when the pastor says we need to raise some money for a missions offering, they say I can't afford it. The Bible says to count the cost. The Bible says to make a budget. The Bible says that a debtor, that, a, that, a, that the, the borrower becomes enslaved by the lender. So if we would apply biblical principles, that is in fact living by faith. 
Let your work be an offering and a testimony unto the Lord. That is living by faith. Don't be lazy. The Bible talks about even ants without someone telling them no to work diligently and prepare for the winter months. That is living by faith. And ladies and gentlemen, let me get over here and step into some toes over here where, where pastors fear to tread, but not this one and not my cohort. How do you live by faith in your politics? Ephesians 5.11. Paul is talking. Let me tell you this. We make all sorts of applications. With not really a lot of ground to stand on. There are a lot of promises made to Israel in the Old Testament that we try to appropriate to us. Some of that can be applied. Some of it we're, we're, we're applying wrongly. However, Ephesians is clearly the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Ephesus about issues that we are talking about right now. And as Paul summarizes one particular area and gets ready to transition into another teaching, he says this, don't have any fellowship. Don't be a part of. Don't be a party to. Or I would say don't be a member of a party of that promotes the unfruitful works of darkness. Matter of fact, we're told that we're not even supposed to stand on the sideline and stay neutral. This scriptural command says, Christian, you are to be salt. You are to engage the darkness and reprove and rebuke the darkness. This came up this week, breaks my heart. They are making moves, and now that they have control of the House and the Senate and the White House, they want to codify abortion in federal law. So even if the Supreme Court reversed Roe versus Wade, it still wouldn't make a difference. Let me ask you this. What does that have to do with the pandemic? What does that have to do with our economy? What does that have anything? What does the murder of children have to do with anything? Baal worship, Baal worship is exactly what it is. No more than when the Jews would get down in the, uh, in the uh, valley uh, uh, south of, of Jerusalem and, and take their babies and burn them in the fires, offering to, to, to Moloch and Ashtaroth and Baal. We just save a step. We kill them before they're born. They would wait and kill them after they were born. By the way, this is my grandson. I'm going to get to hold him in about two and a half months. But somebody please tell me that is not a human being. Somebody please tell me that that is not a baby. But ladies and gentlemen, the point I'm wanting to make here is this is what it means to live by faith. A disciple of Jesus, a Christ follower, is one who walks with Jesus day by day, studies His teaching of the truth, and then applying His instruction to life since He is, in fact, the Lord of all. Now, Dan mentioned this in the Sunday school hour. This is uh, George Barnum, the guy in the middle. Uh, Richard Land, Sam Rohr on the, on the left side, David Barton standing right next to me, and me and my pre-cancer days. You know, I always fancied myself as still being an athlete because my body weight was the same as it was when I was a player. <laughs> but as I look at it, I think the quality had, had really gone downhill through the years. But I, I was looking at this earlier in preparation. I thought, it's hard to believe that... that that David Barton and I are even the same species. <laughs> I could literally put him inside my coat pocket with my pen. But Dan references a study uh, called a U-turn by Barna and Barton many times. We may, we may reference that as we wind up today. But back in 2004, Barna did a study on worldview. And one of the things that he did that was unusual... He didn't just ask people to identify as what they were. As most Christians, they say, oh, I'm a conservative. I'm a Bible believer. I've got a biblical worldview. But what he did is he took some, I think, I think it was a thousand, in excess of a thousand sur uh, uh, surveyors or responders that identified as being born again, evangelical, uh, Bible-believing Christians. And he took that group and then gave them a short test. It wasn't an exhaustive test. It was like ten questions. But based upon their response to those ten questions, he found that these self-identified, born-again, Bible-believing Christians were actually 
postmodernists. And only 9% actually possessed a biblical worldview and how they viewed life. Well, folks, this, folks, this makes perfect sense. We began to lose the schools in 1962. We've lost them completely now for the last couple of decades. Uh, we no longer are taught a biblical worldview. We don't teach biblical morality. Heavens, we don't even teach that there are two genders, which to me is quite obvious. You know, I grew up in schools that had either a male or a female restroom. I didn't think that was that hard of a question. But that's where we've gotten. That is what permeates our educational system and our universities and our secular media. So unless a person is specifically, systematically taught to think biblically in every area of their life, we may actually have a country full of uh, many truly born-again Marxists, truly born-again postmodernists. Why is this? Because churches have accepted and believed the lie of dualism. We have compartmentalized our lives between the secular and the sacred. And we don't talk about the secular things in church. And quite frankly, isn't it interesting that the secular list continues to expand? Now you can't talk about marriage in church. Because that's become a political issue. Well, I thought God established that in Genesis 2 and 3. We can't talk about abortion in church. Really? Killing an innocent, preborn human being is uh, a I mean, that's, that's political? Boy, I can take you through the pages of Scripture and show you that's in the Bible from 6,000 years. As Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. We are the same old sinful, wicked people. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, or, or, or desperately wicked. Who can know it? We may have cell phones and air conditioning and indoor plumbing, but we're still the same old sinner going all the way back to, to uh, Cain. The sad thing is, is that every issue that we face today has been dealt with in Scripture, and every area of responsibility has been assigned by God to one of four realms of government. Now, I'm going to lay this foundation. Over the course of this year, Dan and I are going to expand on it. But we haven't in our churches made disciples. We haven't taught our, our, our professors of faith to observe all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded us. Again, this is basic biblical worldview. Understand that God created four realms of government, not just one. We have been trained to think government, we think of the White House, or we think of the U.S. Capitol, or we think of the Oklahoma Capitol. Nope. It began with self-government. Genesis chapter 1. And Adam was told right and wrong and told what he could and couldn't do. Then we see family and family government introduced in Genesis 2 and 3. I've got on the list church government was introduced in Acts 2. And we are now kings and priests. Whereas in the old covenant there was the idea of the Levitical priesthood. But then fourth you've got civil government which was first mentioned in Genesis chapter 9. These are the four realms of government, and applying proper responsibility in each category is what we must do. For example, whose decision is it for you to decide whether you are going to drink a 32-ounce soda or a 16-ounce soda? It's yours. It's not Mayor de Blasio's. That's your responsibility. You also are responsible for the consequences. It's okay to have a 32-ounce soda. If you have 10 of them every day and do that every day of your life, it's not going to turn out well for you. Self-government. Masks are self-government. If you are compelled based upon your understanding and talking with your doctor that it is better for you to wear a mask, by all means, I want you to wear a mask. But it is not the mayor's responsibility to mandate masks any more than it's his responsibility to mandate we have to wear a jacket every time the temperature falls below 40 degrees. That is part of self-government. Understand, tyranny comes when the civil government oversteps and starts invading the other areas of government. Is everybody with me? By the way, self-government, the most important thing in self-government is what you are going to do with Jesus Christ. The mayor can't make that decision for you. President Watts' face can't make that decision for you. That is up to you. 
It's up to each and every individual. You've got to determine whether you're going to bend your knee to Jesus or not. Second area, family government. Just give you one example. We will go into detail on all these as we teach this exhaustively in our many variety of messages over the course of this year. One area of responsibility given to the family is moms, dads, train up your children in the way they should go. Raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now let me ask you this. Where did we come up with the idea that we're supposed to take our children down to the local kindergarten, drop them off at age five, then pick them up as they graduate university some, what, 22 years later, or what, no, 18 years later, 17 years later. Some of us like 25 years. <laughs> and we wonder why our country looks the way it does? You wonder why we've got so many, even pastors now, that are social justice warriors? Folks, social justice is a lie. There is justice. Justice is justice. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female, black, white, or yellow, whatever. There is only justice. But they have been taught this idea because that's what's taken over our educational system. We haven't raised up our kids. And we've said this for years. We have warned against what's going on right now. We have done everything we can to try to change the direction of the church for the last 15 years of my 20 years as being a senior pastor. We will lose this battle for control of the mind. We will lose the battle of worldview if you bring your kid even to a church as fundamental doctrinally as this one, if you bring your kid to our church for one hour a week and then they go to public education for 40 hours a week, we are going to lose that battle 100% of the time. So again, what's the area of responsibility? Family. Certain areas delegated to that. Church government. Certain areas of responsibility delegated to the church. One of which is the uh, is Charity. It's not the civil government's authority to decide that Terrell Holson makes too much money and uh, old Joe Blow over here is not making enough, even though Joe hasn't worked in the last five years and refuses to even go apply for a job. It's not fair that Terrell has worked all these years and saved for his retirement as a doctor and has all this stuff. Terrell's got too much. This guy doesn't have anything. I, as the government, I'm going to steal from you, but it's legal because I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the government. So I'm going to steal from you without your permission and I'm going to give it to this person over here. That's not biblical. The church is supposed to handle acts of charity. And there's, boy, let me tell you, it's very successful. We have helped, we don't, you never hear about it because we don't trumpet this. This is not what we're, it's not what we go out trumpeting. But we have worked with members within our church family and even outside our church family for the last 20 years. And it's not a perpetual silver spoon. First thing we do if somebody has an issue is we have them do a budget. We're going to make sure if they've got a, uh, uh, just an accidental problem that they find themselves in, or if it's a habitual problem. If it's a habitual problem, we need to work with them on that. However, the point is, is that church is who's delegated the responsibility of that particular uh, area of, of civilization. The last area, and the smallest and least intrusive, is civil government. What's the purpose of civil government? According to God's will, to punish evildoers and to protect those that do well that we may live peaceably in all godliness. That is God's intent for civil government. That's what it was designed to do. Now, there's a lot of examples throughout world history of perverse civil governments. Those aren't God's will. Now, God will eventually be glorified through all those things. But it's not God's will that man should disobey and defy Him. And when a government becomes perverse and oversteps its boundaries, there are times when a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to say no. There are times when a Daniel has to say no. There's a time where the Hebrew midwives have to say no. However, tyranny comes when the civil government erases the church and the family and the, and the individual and assumes all authority under its own control. John Adams said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. But ladies and gentlemen, we are all sinners by nature. We are all wicked. The only way a man can be controlled is to either chain him down with handcuffs or to restrain him with the power of the Holy Spirit. In order to have freedom where you don't need fences and handcuffs, you've got to be self-governing. The less self-government you have, 
the less family government you have, the less church government you have, then the more civil government you must have. So this is all by design. And what have we done? Well, over the last 40, 50 years, we can strike self-government off because we now no longer preach against sin in our pulpits. What's much more comfortable is to recognize that we are simply victims of our situations and not actually sinners because of our hearts. Now, understand how different this is. If you are a victim, then there's nothing you can do about it. If you are a sinner, then you can repent and change direction. But we no longer talk about sin because that's politically incorrect. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to damage anyone's self-esteem. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus rebuke Peter? Did Paul instruct Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and also to exhort? Did Paul instruct the church to rebuke sin as we shared a little while ago? Absolutely. But we no longer talk about self-government, so we can strike that off. The family has been under attack since the 1960s with the sexual revolution. And please understand this basic rule in economics. If you subsidize something, you're going to increase it. If you tax something, you're going to decrease it. That's why they have sin taxes. That's why they tax cigarettes at $2 a pack, because they want to decrease people smoking cigarettes. So if you raise the taxes, you're going to get less of it. If you subsidize something, you're going to get more of it. So let me ask you this, with common sense, what kind of derelict comes up with the idea that we want to tax you more as you produce more, the more successful you are, and we want to subsidize unwed mothers? More babies you have out of, pregnancy, out of wedlock will give you more money. Folks, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where that winds up. But the church has been, or the family's been under attack since the 60s. Then you had the Obergefell decision back in 15. And now we have the family structure is what it is. Very broken, sadly, in most situations. The church is no longer relevant because pastors are more concerned about being popular and being liked. Remember the church, Thessalonica, was accused of trying to turn the world upside down. Don't you wish the church in America was accused of trying to change the world? No, we're too busy. As Dan said a while ago, this study, a few years back, they surveyed 412 pastors from conservative denominations. That means more orthodox, like Baptist, Presbyterian, some that you would assume would be theologically orthodox. Surveyed these pastors and said, uh, do, does the Bible speak about all the issues of our day? 90% of the pastors said, yes, the Bible speaks about all the issues of our day. Then those same pastors were asked, will you preach about those issues from your pulpit? 90% said no. Let me pause and make this point. Of those conservative pastors, 10% don't even know what the Bible says. 90% are willfully defiant and disobedient to do what God has called them to do and preach the whole council. Does that explain why we're in the situation we're in? But those pastors asked, well, why won't it? If the Bible speaks about it, why won't you talk about it? And again, as Dan said, I think said earlier today in Sunday school, because they were concerned about the success of their church. And they defined success with five categories. Attendance, offerings, square footage, staff members, and programs that they offered. I find that Jesus died for none of those things in Scripture. But that is where we are at today, and that is why the church is irrelevant today. But again, when you take away self-government, family government, church government, then all that's left is an ever-increasing, all-encompassing, tyrannical, civil government that would take care of everything. By the way, that exactly, any of you that have studied Marx at all understand that he attacked these three areas specifically. And this was the goal. We have the dictatorship of the proletariat. Oh, it's the people's dictator in Cuba, in North Korea, in communist China, in the old Soviet Union. No, dictators are still dictators. People get squashed by the power. Now, here's what is alarming. This is a picture from our current president in the Oval Office this, or in the Oval Office this week. That picture behind him is Cesar Chavez, the former communist 
worked heavily in the labor unions, which the communist agenda says they were going to penetrate. That now sits behind the resolute desk. So we will wrap up with this right here. Over the course of this year, we will emphasize... Dan, if you'd go ahead and roll to the next slide. I I really don't want to look at that. Thank you. (laughs) We're going to emphasize the fundamentals of our faith. Like what I shared a couple of weeks ago. What is faith? Folks, I want you to know what you know. What you know is true. I want you to be able to prove it's true. Because there may come... There may come a time where you may lose your job if you don't compromise. Could happen. I can see that happening very clearly. We've got pastors in California right now. Two pastors specifically. Calvary Chapel pastors. One pastor is facing $30,000 in fine, five days in jail, and his church has a million dollars in fines. What was this crime? They've had church. That is going on to this Sunday. Got an email. We're working on some things. Other pastors. What's going on with our brothers in California? Another pastor from a little smaller Calvary Chapel faces five days in jail and thirty thousand dollars in fines. You better know that what you believe to be true is true, because you may be asked to take a stand, which could cost you. We've got a lot of Christians in Christian history that have paid the ultimate price for their faith. Tell you what, you don't want to be unsure about anything. We're going to emphasize the facts of our faith. We're going to emphasize fact and practice. Dan began a message last week. He'll finish it next week. Very important. We will be preaching and teaching a comprehensive biblical worldview. We will try to identify, if we can, what area of of worldview we'll be dealing with. Whether it be self, family, church, or civil. In each message, you kind of understand and categorize them. Many of you will hear things if you stay with us. You will hear things in this church that you have never heard in church before. And that is too bad. And that is exactly why our country is in the shape that we're in today. Because we haven't made disciples. We've been more interested in our offerings and attendance. But it all begins, as I showed a minute ago, with self-government. And as I said earlier, the most important decision you will make is what will you do with Jesus? And I've said, Dan has said, we in America, Christianity has been comfortable. In fact, you have people in Oklahoma that were not Christians that identify as Christians when they run for office because it's preferable. They have a better chance of getting elected. Tell you what, it wasn't that way. First century Jerusalem, if you identified as being a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, you were kicked out of the synagogue, you were ostracized from all social life that you knew, your family basically treated you as if you were dead, you no longer was a part of their family, and then eventually it worked into arrest, punishment, persecution, martyrdom. Hey, you better know, you better be sure about what you claim to believe if it's going to cost you that much. In America, church's convenience. Identifying as a Christian is convenient. It's about to not be. This is actually a great thing. I don't like it, but it's a great thing. Is we will separate very quickly the wheat from the chaff. It will not be easy to be a fundamental orthodox Bible-believing Christian. You will be challenged You will be tempted. And you'll either compromise or you won't. But again, that is your decision. I can't make it for you. That's part of your self-government. And it all begins with who is Jesus. Dan reminded you, please turn in your testimonies. And thank you for those of you that have. I want everybody in this room, whether you attend here or not, whether you want to send it to me or not, at least go through the process. Think about it. What has your life been with Jesus? When did you really get serious? Yeah, I always grew up in church. I always did this. I always kind of went through the motions. Yeah, yeah. At what point did did Jesus really become real to you? At what point did you really turn over control to Him? Think about your testimony. If you have it, I want it. We want a copy of it here. But think about it, if not anything else, for you. 
Do you have a testimony? There's only two groups of people out there. Either believers or unbelievers. You either are like Thomas and you fall at Jesus' feet and cry out to Him as Savior and Lord. Or you say, no thanks. I've got it under control. I'm just going to go to church. I'm going to go through the motions. It's very comfortable. I don't like this idea of surrender. I don't like this idea of lordship. That's not for me. That's your decision. Question right now as we close. What is your testimony? It begins with self-government. Do you know Jesus? If we had somebody come in here today with, with, with it say, hey, we're going to, all you've got to do to walk out the door is deny your faith in Christ. Now, that's easy. We all talk boldly right now because we're under no threat right now. But there is much of Christian history, the majority of Christian history, and much of the world today face that very question. If you can walk out the door freely denying Christ or perhaps suffer great loss financially or even your own life by refusing to deny Christ, where do you stand on that issue? Well, that's a deep thought for all of us, even myself. I'm a big, bold talker in front of an auditorium full of Christian people while we still have freedom. And quite frankly, I'm tired. After going through cancer two years ago, I'm tired. My body's physically tired. I'm, I'm worn out. My joints all hurt from playing football. Heaven, the older you get, the more appealing heaven is. But grandparents, what would you do if someone held a knife to your grandchild's neck? Said, deny Christ or I'm going to kill him. Wow. That is a real situation that has happened more times than I would care to present. Not just in Christian history, but around the world today. Do you know that you know?